This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do, can do. Well, we're very excited here at Kentucky Derby Week at the Can Do Horse Racing Podcast to be joined by none other than two-time Kentucky Derby winning jockey John Velasquez. John, thanks so much for making time for us during this busy week. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So since it's Derby Week, why don't we talk first about your Kentucky Derby experiences, John. I know that your first win came under somewhat unusual circumstances, correct? That's right. Well, uh, one of those years that um, going to the Kentucky Derby uh, with a, uh, one of the favorites, and it was Uncle Mo, um, I, I got there on Wednesday night to Churchill Down, and uh, I went to do uh, an event charity event on Wednesday night uh, and I found out that Onkuma might not even run and I had talked to the owner a couple of days before that I guess it had to be Monday and and I have not heard anything and anyway so I heard that on Wednesday Thursday morning I got up went to the barn and I got the news that yeah the, the horse probably was not going to run in the meantime Robbie Alvarado had an accident. I think it was Tuesday uh, or even Wednesday, Wednesday uh, right. early in the races. And uh, I guess Todd had he he, he came in. Uh, he, they find out on Thursday that he was taking off the horses on Thursday and Friday. So Todd had talked to um, Brian Motion and that he might not run his horse. That he didn't have a jockey that are probably going to become uh, available for the race. Then later on that day on Thursday, uh, I saw Brian Motion. We had dinner with him and the family, and and he told me about the conversation he had he had with um, with Todd, and they were thinking about it. You know, the owners were thinking about it. You know, and to see how Robbie was doing, and hopefully he could make make back. You know, for for the Derby. I guess he he decided not to ride on Friday, and the owners were thinking about. Making a change if he didn't ride on Friday, if they didn't feel comfortable that that keeping on the horse if he didn't ride on Friday, he they took off on Friday and that's how. Uh, I mean, I was like, we kind of knew that Onkomo was not running, mm-hmm. uh, so on Friday the news came out that they were going to scratch the horse, and that Friday evening I found out that that might make a change for me for the for the next day. So then Saturday the morning, that's when I found out that uh, they were making a change to, for me to ride. Uh, Animal Kingdom. Wow! So it was one of those stories. It was it was bizarre, and that's how it happened. You know, it was one of those things. And 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 the funny thing is that I told Graham, I'm sorry, don't try to make a change just because you know I'm I'm your friend. If I don't know, the owners want to change, make a change, and I definitely want you in my horse. So if the owners want me, and you feel comfortable with me, I'm more than welcome to it uh, to be on your horse. So that's how it happened. And that's how I end up winning my first Kentucky Derby. Wow! So, so day of the race, you find out that you're going to be riding this horse that you, I believe, you had never ridden before, correct? 
No, I never ridden the horse before. Um, yeah, it was, it was officially that morning, on Saturday morning, uh, they, they told me. I, I, I kind of knew they were making, they were planning to do it, but, uh, you know, obviously you, you never know until they do it. So that morning they, they told me they were making the change, yes. Wow, wow. So your second win was a little, well, I don't want to say it was less dramatic than that because any derby win is dramatic, right? But uh, that was with Always Dreaming and trained by Todd Pletcher. You and Todd have obviously had a long uh, partnership together. Was it was it extra special winning the Derby with him? Well, obviously, the, winning the first Derby is, is extra special as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. But, you know, I, it wasn't a horse that I brought into the Derby. At least they always remained. I mean, I was there from the beginning. It was a horse that, that I was riding the whole way into the Derby. Uh, um, and obviously, the connections behind between the owners, the uh, Podomos and Vino uh, Aola and, and the rest of the crew, and obviously Todd, you know, uh, Todd and I have been, you know, a, a great partnership for so many years and not winning. Um, I can talk it there. It was definitely, it was missing. So it was part of it, you know, uh, it was definitely special. And of course, I know your first Triple Crown win was also Todd's first Triple Crown win, right? With with Rags to Riches, correct? That's right. Yeah. And another horse that I never rode before, I ended up picking it up, going to uh, the Belmont and we won the Belmont. So one of those things happens and uh it's uh, very blessed to be in that position. So, John, for those of us who are probably about 150 pounds overweight in terms of riding a horse, uh, it's hard for us to imagine what it's like to get on a horse for the first time, not really knowing the horse. Um, I suppose that it's your long experience in riding that allows you to do that, but do you ever have any trepidation when you have to get on a horse you've never been on before? No, I guess I, I, I don't think so so long. <laughs> no, but I, I think it's just because I feel calm. But first of all, it, you have to feel com- confidence that you can do the job on whatever horse they are giving you, so, you know, and all the challenges that are thrown at you. I think for somebody to be successful in any job or anything that you do, you have to feel, feel comfortable that you can do the job. You, get, you can get the job done, you know, and, and, I, yep. and I think that's what the, the way I, I look at it. You know, I... I and I mean, I travel a lot and uh, done this for a long time as well. But, you know, I always thought even in the beginning of my career that I had to be prepared for anything they were throwing at me, you know, and, and, and be prepared for it um, and try to handle everything the best you can and try to, to make the less mistakes possible. And, and I think as, as, as the years went by and the more confidence you get uh, that you can do the job done and doing the, getting the opportunities that you're getting, you know, and try to get everything done the right way. Um, that's the way I approach things, so, you know, and, and so, yeah, I, I don't think that uh, very unusual for me to get on a horse that i never seen before. So I, I just go by, by do your homework, be confident that you can do the job done, and, and I think you, you'll be successful at it if, if you, you know, everything comes, comes your way. See, you mentioned homework, John, and that's an interesting uh, piece. And uh, one of the questions I had when you are preparing for a race, right, do you look at the past performances of horses in the race, including your own, to to try and figure out how the race is going to play out? Absolutely. I mean, that's the only way I can do it. You know, okay. I, I cannot go up there without actually uh, watching the past performance. Uh, obviously, you have to, um, not just your own, you have to watch everybody else. Right, and, right. And their right. Even the, the jockeys, the trainers, and everybody else that that you you have to anticipate what's going to happen while what everybody uh drinking to do um and at least be have a plan a plan b plan c and go on so, you know it's like all the way to see if it's possible you know at least you have some sort of preparation that uh 
that you have to change right away. You have to think quickly. Obviously, once the door from the gate open, it has to come quickly. You know, you hope that your horse responds for the things you like to do, but everything else, it moves quickly that you have to change it. And, uh, you know, I guess I, you need to be ready. You need to be ready for it. And hopefully the, the homework that you've done, it has helped you, you know, to to make you you, uh, you change it as, as, as it goes, you know. Well, I would imagine that confidence that you talked about must help when, as you said, you know, the gate's open and then, uh, you know, the speed horse doesn't break or, um, you know, you get slammed out of the gate or something like that. That confidence that you talked about earlier must, you know, that in your preparation, obviously, because you're thinking about plan A and plan B and plan C, must allow you to make those changes on the fly when, when things don't happen the way you expect. I, and that's the way I look at it. You know, you have to prepare yourself. You prepare yourself, do your homework. And things are going to happen, you know. You that the, there, there are things that there, it can happen, and you have to anticipate, it, you know, what could happen and what can change. You you plan A, you know. It's that's the first thing that you have to think. It's like, and nothing works just the way you think it's going to work. Um, and when it does work the way you want to, it's very easy. Then the, the job is it becomes too easy. But it, it doesn't work like that all the time. <laughs> most of the time, I just say, let's put it that way. I would imagine. Uh, most of the time, it's very unpredictable things that can happen, and and that's the way it goes. You have to expect it, you know. So if you prepare for it, and like I said before, you know, listen, you you depend a lot on the horse, and if the horse helps you to do the things you like to do, um, then you you you're ahead of the game, you know. Uh, yep. And sometimes the horses make it very difficult to do it, and sometimes it still works. And most of the time, it doesn't work when the or it's not helping you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's always going to hurt, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. so, so let's talk about, you know, you're riding Code of Honor on Saturday, and he is generally considered, I would say, a closer. I don't know about if he's a deep closer, but, but a closer. So let's assume he's going to be in the middle, you know, maybe a little bit towards the back of the pack. How do you get a sense for the pace that's happening up front? Uh, I guess... <laughs> This is a very good question. I guess it's about how do you feel that what the horse is telling you. You know, it's, uh, if you've taken your horse out of a rhythm that you feel that um, it's doing too much or if it's going slow enough. So I guess the horse is going to be closer than you think, you know, that you anticipate it, you know. So if they're going fast enough, you know that you're pushing your horse a little faster, that it's, it's getting, uh, we call it sweeping out sweeping the horse off his feet, you know, not making him do something that he can do the first part of the race. Like, if they go slow, it'd be pretty easy. He'll be closer, and he'll be pulling in, into the group. And, you know, that's how you gauge it most of the time, you know. It's like, what you know, when you're driving your car in the road, you, you know, most places or around where you live, you know, it's 30 miles per hour, and basically that's what you basically do without even looking your car. It's, it's the feeling that you get from, from the car, and unless you're not paying attention all of a sudden you're going way too fast and then you know it's like wow what, what, why wasn't I paying attention <laughs> so we're, we're we're kind of back to that experience that and, and the confidence that experience gives you to kind of let the horse tell you basically what what is happening I guess is what you're saying right absolutely you know you gotta have you have to have the feeling that the horse is telling you uh, you, or you overdoing it or whether you're going too slow now you're taking too much hold of them or you're pushing them too hard the first part of the race where it's, you know it's it's a little too much for the horse, and um, so you you got to get a feeling of it. Yeah, what what the horse is telling you, definitely. Uh, John, do you still get nervous before a big race like the Derby? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. But it's about the preparation. I think it's more about anticipation of what's going to happen. 
Um, so you definitely get a little anxious about it. Uh, start thinking all the different scenarios that can happen in the race um, and hoping that the horse runs well. You know, so basically, you know, you just, just want to feel your horse on the heat of you and that everything goes the right way. Those are things you, you get more anxious about. It's like, how's my horse going to react? How is it going to you know, gonna hold, on, hold on to, you know, uh, to the race? So I think that's, that's most of the anticipation of, of gonna, how, how's it going to react, let's put it that way. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Earlier this year, I interviewed uh, Tyler Bays out at Santa Anita, and he kind of repeated several times to me when I'd ask about different race situations. He said, you got to have horse. If you don't have horse... It doesn't matter, right? And I guess that's kind of what you're saying too. You get you got to wait to see how the horse is going to respond, right? Yeah, you got you got to debate what, what the horse is going to do. I mean, obviously, it's, we depend a lot on the horse. Now you have the horse. Now you have to be prepared. What are you going to do with it? Right. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. that's a different thing. That's yep. the same thing. You can screw it up very quickly uh, having the horse. So now you have to you have to prepare what you're going to do. John, is preparing for the Derby different, or or is it not different from preparing for any other big race? No, I prepare myself just the same way okay. that I would prepare every day uh, of the week and try to do the best job I can do. So, you know, listen, the, the Derby is, uh, is something that is, that is very watchable. I mean, there, there's obviously so many people watch the Derby and so many people hear about Derby and all that stuff, but it's a difficult race to ride. It's just 20 horses and then... Um, it, it, that's all it is. It's, it's very difficult to ride because everybody is, is wants their position, their position. You know, you you choosing where to go, where you want to be. Uh, so it can be a rough race to ride in. So that's the only difference from any other race that you ride in. You know, and there's not too many horses. I mean, it could be five, six horses, and it could be a little bit rough, but you, you'll you'll get out of it. You know, yeah. Uh, Twenty horses in the Derby is, makes it difficult, definitely. It seems like there's a real premium on on getting out clean. You know, like the last couple of years, I know in the the break and the starting gate between 15 and 14, there have been incidents where you know horses from 15 or 16 came way over and wiped out several right to their immediate left. So getting away clean yeah. is always important, right? But in the Derby, especially so. Absolutely, absolutely. Like I said, you know, 20 horses, it, it, it gets piled. They piled up pretty quickly. <laughs> So, living out of there and get a, a good position, uh, it's important. You know, it's, it's one of the things that happens in the Derby, having that many horses and everybody, you know, fighting for position. So, uh, yeah, it's important, definitely. John, when you're when you're going down the stretch for the first time in the Derby after they open the gates and and when they're coming home, do you do you hear the crowd, or are you just so focused on the horse and what you're doing that? That you don't really hear um, it. Well, I've been in the Derby plenty of times that I actually I hear the crowd, and all the times that I didn't hear the crowd at all. And it means the horses are running well enough that you're concentrating on the race. Yeah. And when they're not running any good, you hear a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess not that makes sense. Good, you know that oh, oh, whatever's happening, everything around you surrounding. But when the horse is running really well now it's all of a sudden you just concentrate in the race in the race and um to see where you're gonna so you can you kind of show now the people i guess uh, okay. that's the only way i can i can explain it you know now that makes sense now john i know in addition to riding the five or so days a week you're also the president of the jockey guild do you does that mean you don't have enough to do the other days of the week or, or what's going on there <laughs> <laughs> I'm busy. I can tell you, it's really busy. You know, obviously, with uh, 
the Intercerimonial Judges Guild and all the different issues that we have from state to state. And so it keeps me busy. But it's something that, that I, I wanted to do and want to help, want, wanted to help and make it better for for all the jockeys. And, you know, it's, it's part of the job to give back. You know, I've been very fortunate and uh, very blessed all the things that, that has bring in my life and to my family we're racing. So I think uh, it's something to give back for myself and, and my fellow riders. So, you know, I, I, I try to make it better for all of us, not just, just for, you know, the top riders, but uh, the little tracks and everywhere else throughout the country. So it's important for us to have a voice. Safety is number one for everything. Obviously, the paramedics uh, and, the, and the racetracks and everything they, they have to do with safety with jockeys, it definitely is number one. So we, we prioritize on having safety first than anything else. So uh, dealing with the racetracks and uh, different states is totally different and uh, different owner, ownership. So can be pretty busy and pretty demanding, but it's, it's part of the game and we got to make it better. Well, you talked about giving back, and I know you've spoken before about, and I'm sure some of it comes from what you've spoken about before with uh, Angel Cordero, who helped you out a lot when you first came to the U.S., correct? Yes. Angel was the first, I mean, obviously, I came from Puerto Rico to live with Angel, so it's all the things that, you know, that I learned most, I mean, most of the things that I learned on racing, I was obviously from Angel, two different styles, I mean, the, the, the more I rode in many you know, years after after I came to New York, you know, you have to make your own style and your different thinking of that way it's going to work for you. You know, Angel was the, the amazing. I mean, for me, it's the best jockey ever, but it, he he had a different style, definitely. He it was his, for his own and, and it worked for him. You know, the way mm-hmm. he rode and he was aggressive, it was very aggressive, uh, but it worked for him. For him. So, Pat made a different style. First of all, when, when I first came in, I tried to do the same thing and, uh, I, I was calling many times to the stewards, and uh, <laughs> I was reminded that it was only one Angel Cordero on the United States. <laughs> so I had, to, I had to stick away from that because people thought, it's like, you know, he just wanted to ride like Angel Cordero and he doesn't know what he's doing and all that stuff. So, yeah, so I had to make up uh, different ways to that it would work for me and, and people can notice me in, in a different way, not just like Angel did. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. I could not. Uh, me do any a lot of stuff the angel did anyway so especially when at the beginning you come you you, you don't know how far you pushing or how far you you pressing you let's put it that way and you make mistakes so so yeah so i learned pretty quickly the first two three years that i had to make my own thinking in my own way or writing that would work better for me but yeah that's the things that i learned from angel so so very fortunate to have him uh and to see all the things he did and uh and the way he thought about riding and, and, and changing things differently for you and your competition. So, very important. Yeah, and that that's actually pretty unique that he didn't try and make you be another angel. Essentially, what you're saying, it sounds like, is he said to you, be be yourself, figure out what your style is and go with it, right? Yeah, well, pretty much, though, you know, but he definitely... The, the 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 great advice that he he actually I, I can I, I can say is it's like you you have you learn from the best but you learn from you learn more from the ones who don't do as well either because oh, really? those that don't do so well as well either those because they make a lot of mistakes and you want to learn those mistakes that you don't want to be in those in those mistakes so there's a I think that's a better way to put it mm. that um, you you want to do the best you can with the less mistakes possible. So you watch from the best, 
you learn from that, but you're going to learn a lot more from the ones that don't look, don't do so well because they make more mistakes. Um, so you got to watch for those in the lens of the, why would you not do that, you know? So, and yeah. those are things that you have to learn. You got to learn that the less mistakes you make, the better you do. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting way of putting it, too. Yeah, John, you mentioned the, you know, one of the missions of the Jockey Guild being the safety and protection of jockeys. Um, and I just want to explore a couple of things on that point. Uh, first thing was, uh, you know, there were several controversies, as everyone knows, out of Santa Anita this winter. And, and one of them was that um, they initially proposed a race day where no whips would be used by the jockeys. And I think there was a little bit of surprise that it was agreed to by the the Jockeys Guild. Of course, they then backed off of that plan, or that that plan changed. But uh, no, no. We, we, uh, let me just say that we we definitely didn't agree to that. So you know. Oh, okay. All right. Well, this is good. Go ahead, yeah, then. Yeah. We, go ahead. We definitely didn't agree to that. What we agreed to do in, with the Jockeys in California were was that okay, they want us to carry the whip. First of all, they, they want us just to carry the whip just for safety reasons. So we we could not use it. We can touch the horse. We can. We couldn't do anything with the horse unless the horse was doing something drastically, uh, just safety issues. Mm-hmm. But if you touch the horse and you actually won the race or finished second or third, you were going to be disqualified or you're mm. going to be suspended. So this is how badly it went to the use of the crop. You know, and, and it's not a whip anywhere in, anymore, so it's right. a crop. Now. Right, good point. And, yep. and actually, and we're going so far as far as a cushion crop. So, uh, so it's we going way before, uh, way be, uh, better than what we, we used to have. But anyway, and this is the thing. So, so we got thrown on the bus and, and thinking that we can't yeah, touch the, the horse. So now you get competitive, and all of a sudden you're, you know, fighting for, for first, for second, or third, and all of a sudden you touch, you touch your horse, you know, whether it's with the whip down or, or the crop, as you said, the cushion crop, uh, touch him and, and crush your horse, and the horse pass the horse in the front. Now all of a sudden you win. But the only one who's penalized is the jock. So the betters don't get penalized, the owners don't get penalized, the trainers don't get penalized, but the jock gets penalized. Mm. Meaning that, that you're going to get your first distribution that you, you're supposed to take away from you, plus actually get a uh, suspension. So the jockey's guild came in, we talked to the guys in California, and it's just, okay, so they want us basically not to use the whip, so we're going to try out a day in California that it was no whip at all. Because we are the only one being penalized about it, so oh, it's very difficult. First of all, it'll yeah. be very difficult for us to explain that we only using the the, the, the crap just to correct the horse if it's doing anything, sure. getting yep. out, in whatever. But definitely not touch the horse if it, to encourage him to pass other horses. So we are the only one penalized. So so why so why why carry at all? So let's go without it, you know. And, and that was the plan. After, ah, okay. We. We uh, decided to do it, and we um, the guys in California, I, I may say, you know, I'm, I was not there, but the guys in California decided that it was not fair for, for us and for all of us anyway to just carry the crop. And, and they've been disqualified or suspended just by just uh, encouraging the horse. So it's just like, well, I might as well not use it. But let me, let me just say that it's a very dangerous game uh, going without the whip either. Sure. Look, look. look they see everything, they hear everything, and this this they really get spooky really, really easy. So they were going to take a chance on showing the public and showing the, their CHRPA and everybody in California that it's very, very difficult 
for us hmm. not to actually even encourage the horse or tap it on the shoulder or touch it the horse to make him pay attention. So they were they were willing to risk. It's, it's a dangerous game as it is. With hmm. actually right. the, the wrap in your hand that they decided, you know what, I know it's dangerous, but we got to show that these horses need to have something that is a tool that is essentially for safety and encouragement as well. So they decided to say, so, okay, we're going to go without it, and we're going to show them this is this is a very, very dangerous job, and mm. it be more dangerous without the tool that we have. So in the end, and the reason we did it, uh, because we didn't get any support from the horseman group or the, or, or the owners group in California when that CHRB meeting happened. So, or even the student group, we didn't get any support from anybody. Uh, so the CHRB uh, really... Uh, took over the meeting and decided they were going to change the rules, and that was the rule they were going to imp- implement. And they're they they're, they're going through a 45, 45 days uh, period that's supposed to go before they they go through another vote and the public uh, comments, all the whatever it is that their uh, the law is required to do in California for them to uh, adapt that rule that mm-hmm. they just come up with. So we decided to do it. We didn't get any. Uh, any support from anybody, and all of a sudden, uh, the horseman's group and the owners' group came in and talked to to us and to the riders, and obviously Jackie's Guild, meaning myself and uh, uh, our CEO Terry Meeks and everybody else, that uh, they were going to support our efforts to make sure that we keep our tool that's very essential for mm. safety and encouragement for the horses. So, so all of a sudden, we did get. Um, support from the horseman group and and the and the owners group from California. So and then we decided to go to go ahead and use the cushion crop for right. that date. Too. Yep. Um, and that's how it happened. Yeah, it, it was a, a very great decision and and to show the, the public and everybody else that, that yeah that we are and we we don't we're not here to harm the horses. So it's just it's as simple as that. It's definitely it's a, it's a, an essential tool for safety and to encourage the horses as well. No, that's some great background into how that all developed, because I'm not sure. I know I wasn't aware of, of all of that. Essentially, kind of what you guys did was to call the bluff a little bit and say, all right, you know, you're going to see what it's like without well, any we, whips, you know? Well, let me just tell you, we didn't call the bluff. It was going to happen. <laughs> that was going to happen. It was not a bluff. It, okay. It was, actually, it was, it was going to happen, and the, the guys that agree that they were going to take care of themselves. If, if the horse was in trouble, getting out, was booking, they were going to let let the other guy know that, listen, I'm in trouble, so you got to help me. So, okay. so they were very adamant that they were going to help each, each other, but the race is going to be run much differently, that's for sure. Okay. We're going to try our best to actually run the race the best as possible, um, but when the, somebody's in trouble, they, somebody had to help, so, you know, So and especially not, not having the tool that we need to, uh, to keep the horses' attention, you know. So it was not a bluff. It was it was it was actually a thing that they they decided to do and try it out for the whole day. Um, so I'm I'm proud of the guys that they actually stuck to to the guns and, yeah. and they wanted to show the public and everybody else. So very proud. Yeah, because that was uh, I, w- I was out in California at the time, and that was you know I remember when you know first you know the, the LASIK rule changes and the, and the whip and. Uh, you know, obviously, as a response, a response to some of the tragedies on track. But you know, I think myself and every other person who is at all close to racing was like, Lasix and the whip. That you know, 
what does this have to do with these horses that are you know breaking down in training? It just it it didn't make any sense. So I think for you guys to stick together like that took that, that took a lot of guts. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I, like I said before, I'm, I'm very proud of the guys that stuck to, to, the, to their guns and they, they, they felt like it was very unfair to what they're trying to do and changing the rules the way it is. Um, and they did it. You know, yeah. they, I'm very proud they actually stuck to it. Well, John, you, you talked about, you know, the safety and protection of jockeys. And I know you've you've dealt with some pretty serious injuries yourself in the past. You, you had a, a bad fall at Keeneland in 2006 and then in 2013, I think at the Breeders' Cup, you had a fall where you ended up getting your spleen removed, I think. Uh, and I'm sure that's probably only the big ones that people have heard about. I'm sure you've actually dealt with a lot of bruises and breaks throughout your career. How do you, how do you keep yourself, uh, first of all, how do you come back from an injury like that? And then secondly, how do you keep yourself in, in shape You know, on a day-to-day basis to deal with the rigors of the game? Well, I, I I don't know, you know. So every time you have an uh, an injury, an accident, uh, you got to put it, you know, behind and move on. You know, there's things that happens and uh, injuries happens. Once you feel, at least I, I feel that I can capable to go back and uh, physically and mentally uh, that I can do the job that I that I need to be doing. And I mean, thank thank God. I mean, I, first of all, thank God that I'm being. Uh, willing to come back and uh, and being healthy enough to to do the job that 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 uh, that, I, that I love and that supports my family. Um, so yeah, you you have to be mentally, physically uh, ready to do it. I mean, it's, it's things that that you gotta you you gotta stay in shape. You got you gotta be strong, um, but also mentally. Yeah, you know, the, mm-hmm. the mental is, is you know you cannot be afraid. You, you gotta go and do the job that you're supposed to be doing. And not be afraid of it. So at the day that you're afraid of it, you should not be doing it because you're going to make more mistakes and you can get hurt in somebody else. So, I mean, those are things that you have to put in your mind. And uh, and whatever that thing that happens, you got to put it behind and move on. Uh, that's the only way I can think of it. Um, stay in shape. Well, I do. You know, I ride a lot of horses. I do work in the morning. Uh, uh, that I, you know, I work enough in the morning to keep me in shape. And when I'm when I'm not doing much or when I'm not riding. I mean, lately, the last few years, I've riding less and less, so I do a little more again. I try to work out, work out a little bit before the races, and make sure I loosen up and um, stay in fit. You know, so make sure I'm still in the, in the high level fitness that um, I'm capable to ride the way I always ride. Yeah, I, I would imagine it's an interesting point about the the mental part that that you made. First of all, you know, uh, and, and not minimizing the physical aspects of it, but I suppose if you if you don't have that mental confidence, you can be in the greatest shape in the world, and it's not gonna not not gonna go well for you, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting. So you still you still are riding horses in the morning as well, doing some exercising and workouts uh, uh, as well. Oh, right, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have to. You know, that's the only thing that's going to keep you fed and. I would keep you customers as well. You know, you got to come out and show up that you're still hungry, that you still want to do this job. So if you don't do that, I mean, uh, people start thinking that you don't you want to be around. How much How much longer do you think you're going to continue to ride, John? I don't have, you know, I, I, if you asked me that 10 years ago, I would say it's like 45, 46, and, uh, you know, just because that's age when people start thinking differently and not getting the opportunities. And first of all, you have to be healthy. And, and thank God I'm healthy. Right? Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. Um, so people start thinking differently of you when you start getting older and that you can really do the job as well when you are younger 
and you don't get the opportunities really, you know, and it's very rare for, for me to get an opportunity that I'm getting right now. Just look, look at Mike Smith. Mike Smith has break every record in, 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 horse, in the horse industry, meaning he's 53, still winning all the big races and all that stuff. So he has make a really, make us all proud that, you know, it doesn't matter the age, he can do the job on any age. If you physically and, and, and physically mentally, uh, uh, ready for to do the job, you know. So mm-hmm. um, and has opened the doors for me behind him. I'm 47, still here and riding horses. I mean, I saw uh, Jerry Bailey did it. I think he was 48 when he retired, and he was riding uh, at his top of his career. Um, Day did it when she was almost 50. Uh, it's very rare, you know, that people like both guys actually get opportunities, and obviously because not a lot of people have done it. But there's a few, you know, there's a few that have done it and they get the opportunities and. Uh, they get the job done. Um, so really, I mean, I, I go I go day by day as long as I'm healthy and, and I'm getting opportunities right now that uh, keep me interested, keep me hungry to keep coming back. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I, I don't have a date or a year that I'm thinking what to quit yeah. or what to do. <laughs> oh, that's fair. That's fair. So, uh, John, I have to ask you. Your wife is the daughter of longtime New York trainer Leo O'Brien. Uh, is there extra pressure on you when Leo reaches out to you to ride a horse? Uh, you know, do you have your, you're worried about pleasing your wife and your father-in-law? No, that was, uh, that was done really early in our, in our marriage that, uh, business and family cannot miss. You know? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's always, uh, it's always there, uh, a little bit of heat in the moment, you know, but it goes, it goes away right away. I mean, we've been, it's going to be 25 years married now. So it's a lot easier now than, that used to be in the beginning of, of when we got married. Um, and Leo had a lot of horses, you know, right. back then, uh, right. early 90s, and winning a lot of races. So, um, but yeah, you know, it, uh, it was an understanding that, you know, he has a business to, to run, and I have a business to run myself. So it, it worked it, uh, each way differently because, I mean, he had to listen to the owners, and when the owners didn't want me, he couldn't ride me on the horses. And same thing when I had some commitment and with somebody else, I couldn't ride his horses. So, you know, it works like that. Um, so we learned that very early uh, in, in our careers that, that you know, when things happen like that, we got to put it behind it and that's it. You know, we move on. So okay. we cannot dwell on that. So thankfully, they're very understanding. Uh, great family. So we're very blessed to, to have them with me and to understand the business. Since they, they've been in the business forever. I mean, I, I on the other hand, I didn't. I didn't grow up in the racetrack. I mean, I just grew up around horses and loved about horses, and I became a jockey later. So that was a totally different thing for me. So they've been in the business since uh, forever. So they, uh, obviously, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, my brother-in-law, uh, obviously, my wife, they've been on, on the business forever since. Uh, uh, for me, it was a learning experience and uh, learning us to go, you know. So how the business goes, uh, runs around, and different people and different, uh, different owners and different situations, different trainers. So ever to me until, you know, you know how business goes. So, uh, but anyway, like I said, uh, yeah, we learned very, very early in, in, in our, in our marriage, let's put it that way, that we couldn't mix both, both of them. <laughs> I suppose you have to, otherwise it would make for some ugly family dinners, right? Otherwise some very uncomfortable family yeah, exactly. dinners. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> we, we, we're very blessed that there, there are some times so he the moment for that they go very very quickly and forgotten and that's it um it was never 
a thing to argue about. It was a never thing to be frustrated about. Things happened, and we got to put it behind it, and that's it. So it's been very good. Very, very good. good. So, so, John, you've always been known for, I think, great timing when you ride, but I, I would say that probably the one of the better examples of your exquisite timing was the day at Saratoga when you won your 6,000th race, which also happened to be John Velasquez's bobblehead day also, correct? I believe so. You know, I don't remember. You have to tell me. I don't remember that. <laughs> well, I, I, I believe it was. So I, I have to ask you, does wait, the bobblehead... Wait, it couldn't be 6,000, but the 6,000, it was, it was recently. So yeah. it, was, I, it was a number, but it couldn't be 6,000 because I just won 6,000 last year, I believe, right? Okay, may, I might have the number so wrong, but but I think one of your milestones was reached on John Velasquez's bobblehead day. Anyway, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes. Well, that's a while ago. Yes. Okay, so here's a question for you, John: Does the bobblehead really look like you? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but none of them do. I mean, you look look at everybody who who they do make, you know, and and had made, and uh, yeah. they don't seem to look like the person is 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 uh, the. I don't know how how you. It's kind of the same person on every one, I think. Actually, isn't it? It seems like actually. As a a mold for everyone, just a little bit different. Yeah. So, Uh, do you have one in your house? Do you keep one around? You know, I don't. Okay. Maybe my wife still has somewhere. I we don't have anything uh, in display. Let's put it that way. So, I I, if we do, it's probably in a box somewhere. I wasn't sure if you were ever tempted to just walk by and give it a flick so that you could watch your own head bobble around a little bit. But uh. <laughs> no, we, we don't do it. And obviously, and maybe when we, if we had something, maybe the kids broke it when they were little. I don't know. Uh. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> they break everything. We know that. That's right. <laughs> yes. So, John, I'll, I'll give you one, one last years. one last tougher question. I'll give you. Uh, who's the best horse you've ever ridden? Oh my God, I've been very like. Listen, I have to say, I've been very, very blessed to ride so many good horses and very very uh, grateful for all of them I always say that it's very hard to choose which one is the best horse I I think really lately you know because I mean wife Dan it was a horse of the year twice back uh, two years back to back um, definitely one of my best horses ever yeah okay well, listen, John, uh, you used the terms a couple of times, grateful and blessed, and, and, and I feel very grateful and blessed that you made time for us during this busy week to join us for this interview. I'm very appreciative of it, um, and I wish you the best of luck this weekend. I hope you stay safe. Um, good luck on thank Saturday, and, and, and thanks very much for your time. It's really appreciated. Uh, thank you very much. All right, John. Safe travels. Thank you. Do this here in the telegraph for a fair bite. I hear his foot's all right. Of course, it all depends if it's red. Last night, I know it's balanced.